Ahoy, mateys. This is K.A.B. Antonio Bay. Stevie Wayne here, beaming a signal across the sea. For Kevin Lane of the Spill Your Guts podcast, a warm hello. And keep a watch out for that fog bank heading in from the east. In the meantime, relax with me while I play this song from the Coupe de Ville's, dedicated just to you. Welcome to Spill Your Guts. I'm your host, Kevin Lane. In this episode, I delve into the varied and often surprising career of one of the original queens of Scream, Adrienne Barbeau. It's a bit of a misnomer to call Adrienne a Scream Queen because Adrienne prides herself in having played women in horror who aren't victims. With iconic characters like Stevie Wayne in The Fog and Maggie in Escape from New York for Master of Horror John Carpenter and former husband, but more on that later, Adrian has never been comfortable portraying women who run from the evil. She prefers to come out at guns a-blazing, as she did in the convent, playing the tough-as-nails survivor, Christine. Adrian's early career didn't point to a specialty in films in the Cobb, as she began on stage with roles like her Tony-nominated role as Rizzo in the original Broadway production of Grease. Plenty of other roles on the stage followed before Norman Lear chose her to star opposite B. Arthur in the iconic television classic Maud. Her casting in John Carpenter's Someone Is Watching Me, playing one of television's first lesbian characters, and played sensitively and free of the cliches that often marred early television portrayals of gay characters, began her career down the road of becoming an icon of horror. And working for many of the Masters of Horror is another highlight of Adrienne's body of work. From Wes Craven's Swamp Thing, which during production, Adrienne thought was going to be a total bomb, to George Romero's Creep Show, playing the delightfully vile Wilma and his film Two Evil Eyes, to Rob Zombie in his remake of Halloween. Adrian has truly earned her role in the Horror Hall of Fame. Adrian and I dig into all these films, as well as the role she chairs playing on HBO's masterful and unbelievably cancelled Carnival, which ran for two seasons, and why she thinks every actor is deeply insecure at heart. So, keep an eye out for those fog banks, and listen in. Hi, Adrian. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm okay. Good. Thank you so much for coming and chatting with me today. Well, I've already enjoyed chatting with you before we did this, so I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, let's keep it. Let's keep it going. I just got to maintain a standard now. Um, <laughs> okay, so I wanted to start with. I found this quote. Now, this is this is supposed to be your quote, but you tell me if you remember this, and if you do. Um, I have a question for you about. So the quote that you said is in all the horror films that I have done, all of these were strong women. I don't feel I ever played the victim, although I was always in jeopardy. Well, it's not a direct quote. I know that I have said, and I do think, you know, I wasn't very good at playing a victim. <laughs> I don't know if I've always been in jeopardy, but let me think about all the horror films. Let's see. Uh, well, I don't know. Do you think Billy and Creepshow is a victim? 
I don't think she's no a way, victim. no way. <laughs> she gets killed, but she's not a victim. Uh-uh. You know? <laughs> Far from it. Far from it. I feel like Hal Holbrook's a victim, but uh... <laughs> yeah, he is. Poor guy. Poor guy. Um, uh, but um, let me think about some of the others. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not attracted to a role where. I'm not attracted to attracted to a victim role, I guess. I'd like to think that, you know, I would I could stand up for myself and and fight back and and you know, do what's right. But uh I'm sure if I looked at the whole list I'd find something. Even I mean, even right from the beginning, even with Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway, or I was the second daughter, the one that leaves and goes to Siberia, you know. I tend to play sort of stronger people. Rizzo. Yeah. Know? Yeah. And then and then onward from there. And I I was curious thinking about, you know, part of that quote made me think that because I know, you know, you talked about this in your book, that that you're not necessarily like you don't watch horror films. No. And so I was curious, though, do you think in, in in doing so many genre films, and I know you enjoy doing them, do you think that when you're doing genre films and you kind of get to explore, you know, these sometimes darker characters, darker stories, that it can help, you know, like I've always joked with people that when I've been on horror film sets, they're usually the most fun and that horror filmmakers are some of the nicest, most relaxed people I've met. Do you think working in the genre can sort of help people manage some of the darkness about real life? Oh my gosh, Kevin, I've never thought about that. <laughs> um, um, I'm not sure. Well, for me, certainly, I don't think there's a correlation. When I think about working in the genre, I think about, you know, being in the middle of a blizzard and nobody's <laughs> got nobody's got blood juice. And so we're using Yoohoo mixed with tomato juice or something I mean, yeah, I think yeah because most a lot of horror films and certainly some that i've been involved in are very low budget yeah so you know um <laughs> but in terms of dealing with the darker side of mankind mm, i don't know i've just i've never made that connection i know it's it always makes me curious because i've heard you know a lot of genre directors john and romero and and that's another connection, by the way, that you and I share is I know that you worked with George twice and you guys became good friends. And George became my mentor in Toronto. We wrote a movie together just before he passed oh. away. Yeah, I worked uh. with George for years. He was he was one of my favorite people I've ever met in this line of work. Yes, mine too. Yeah, mine too. He always knew that I would go anywhere at, with two days notice for no money, just to be able to work for him. You know, I, I love George. Yeah, he's yeah. a pretty special guy. Um, but George used to say that. I remember we'd be working on stuff and and he would say, you know, it's part of the fun of doing this stuff is getting all that, this is his wording, getting all that shit out of your system. And I was like, that's kind of interesting. I, I You know, maybe that's why so many genre filmmakers are these really kind of mellow chill people um you know I, all the stressed out guys i ever worked with were the guys who were working in comedy and drama <laughs> oh, i'm sure yeah, that's, that's probably true that's probably true well yeah. when i think about when i think about the directors that i've worked with in horror who were good and who <laughs> who, who produced good material 
that is a, a characteristic that maybe they all share. They're all pretty laid back and, uh, and relaxed. And uh, yeah, I never thought about that before from that in that in those terms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was it's it's it, it's a connective tissue. I've talked to Dee and a few other friends I have who work primarily in the genre. I mean, it's funny. I'll I joke with Dee, too, that she sort of bounces back from, you know, Christmas movies to <laughs> horror movies right. back and forth. <laughs> Um, and that th there's a very different tone in place there. Um, but so anyways, well, let's start sort of a little bit at the beginning here and, and we'll, we'll sort of go about this a bit linear. So you were born in Sacramento on June 11th, 1945. Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing, siblings, your relationship with your folks, that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, my dad worked for Mobile Oil and so we were transferred a lot. Uh, I started in Sacramento, then I think went to... Fresno, and then Stockton, and then maybe back to Sacramento, I'm not sure, and then San Mateo, always in California, these are all cities in California, San Mateo, and then when I was 12, my parents divorced. I have a sister who's six and a half years younger than I am, who's probably the best sister in the world <laughs> uh, and the best mother in the world. And um, she's an educator. And uh, when my parents divorced, my mother settled, stayed in San Jose, settled in San Jose. So I started seventh grade uh, through my one year of college in San Jose. And when I was in, when I was about 15, I started working with the San Jose Civic Light Opera, which was a multi-million dollar organization, volunteer, community theater, basically. Right. But they did these huge productions. And so I, uh, I started doing musical comedy. And um, when I, a week after I graduated high school, I went to what in those days was known as the Orient. Now it's Southeast Asia. I went to Southeast Asia for th a three-month tour entertaining our armed forces. We were right on the DMZ in Korea. They shot and killed three fellas that had been at our show, the, the North Koreans did, uh, as they were driving home right behind us. Uh, we were in Japan. We were in um, Okinawa. We were on a, an atomic testing center called Johnston Island, which didn't allow women to spend the night. So we flew in, changed our clothes in the liquor cabinet, did our show, <laughs> flew right back out again, you know, <laughs> and, um, and it was an incredible experience. Uh, and then I came back and started college and then worked with, did another show with a friend who had been in New York. And she said, you know, you ought to go to New York. I mean, that's where all the good teachers are. And, and you know, and up until that point, I don't, I mean, I didn't know anybody that, I didn't know you could earn a living as an actor, I thought, you know, I'd get my degree and I'd teach acting because I liked acting, but I didn't know that was something you did to, yeah. you know, to support yourself. Yeah. But when she said this, I thought, well, okay, why not? Uh, and uh, so I just packed my bags. I was 19. I didn't know anybody in New York, but I, I flew to New York, you know, got a room at the YWCA for $8 and 25 cents a night and um, finally found two girls who were looking for a roommate and uh, started working at night in 
uh, I, I actually started working at night in a, uh, uh, like a cocktail lounge restaurant um, and ended up being one of the first go-go dancers in the history of New York, I guess, and making the rounds during the day, you know, going to classes, taking voice lessons, doing auditions, and um, eventually got in the union and eventually got on Broadway. I was the second daughter in Fiddler on the Roof. It had been playing for about four years. Um, shared a dressing room with Bette Midler, who was playing the older daughter, and John Savage, who then who played Fiedka, but then John and I ended up working, you know, back in 2005 in Carnival. And so that was the beginning of my career. I started on stage. And then it was my performance in Greece, which led Norman Lear to cast me in Maude. And that brought me to L.A. and started doing television and went from being known as or being thought of as a musical comedy actor to a comedian, couldn't get hired to be seen for a dramatic show, you know, right. until, until they finally, I finally got a Quincy. I played a rape crisis counselor who gets raped or something. And that was sort of, okay, she can do drama and comedy. And, um, and it wasn't until John Carpenter hired me for, I mean, I'd done a lot of films, excuse me, for television. Right. John uh, hired me for Someone's Watching Me, which was a TV movie, but brought us together and, um, and started our, our romantic relationship. And then John wrote The Fog and wrote the role of Stevie Wayne for me. And in 1978 and 79, when we were getting ready to do that, if you were on television, you couldn't be seen for a, a film role because the producers felt that, you know, nobody's going to pay to see somebody at the box office when they can see him for free yeah. every Tuesday night. That sure has changed. And, um, <laughs> that has certainly changed. Yeah. But had John not cast me in the fog, uh, who knows how long it would have been before I had, I made the transition and, and added that medium to, to my resume, you know? Yeah. Um, and then because uh, of my relationship with John, I think, and because my first film was The Fog, um, I sort of, you know, developed a label as of, of being able to do horror films. Right. I went, over to, I went over to Greece and did a science fiction film with Pierre Doulet. I remember that. And then came back and did Escape and, and all, all the things that came after that. Did comedy in the middle, yeah. did Cannonball Run, and, yeah. and was still doing television. It was funny in your book when you were talking about Cannonball Run, and I remember, I, I, I saw Cannonball Run years ago, but I remember thinking as I started to learn more about this, all the personalities, and it was like, that shoot must have been just a shit show. <laughs> 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 like, there's so many, you know. From my point of view, it was. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Like, it was. I don't know what anybody else would say. Plus, we had, I mean, we had a tragic, tragic accident, you know, a stunt, a stunt gone wrong that left our stunt woman paralyzed from the neck down. Yeah. And, um, 
so it was, that, it was joyful <laughs> production that you see on screen. Let's yeah, say that. yeah. For me, at least. For yeah, me. <laughs> yeah. I was so I want to. I want. I, there's a quote I, I wanted to. Another one I wanted to bounce off you, and this one's just sort of about the craft. And I was curious if you feel this way. So I was reading. Um, the great character actor Brian Cox put out a memoir recently. Oh yes. Um, it's called "Putting the Rabbit in the Hat," and he had a quote in the book where he said. A characteristic familiar to the actor, that feeling of deep-seated insecurity. All actors suffer from it. We are desperately insecure. Do you think that's true? Does, did you ever feel that? Or do you think that applied to you when you first started on stage? Oh, I was incredibly insecure. Right. I was incredibly insecure. Um, I didn't think I could sing. I, I remember I'm doing Fiddler. You know, I'm I'm singing every night. I'm doing one of the leads in Fiddler. Yeah. And um, and someone came backstage to to meet Bet to to take Bet out. Some friend of Bet's came backstage, and I happened to be leaving before she was ready. And as I walked out, the fellow said to me, "Oh, your song was lovely. It was just lovely." And I said, "Oh, thank you, thank you." And I walked out, and I thought, <laughs> "Why would he say that? He doesn't know me. He didn't have to say that. Why would he say that?" And that was sort of the beginning of my having to work on myself to say, Adrienne, do you think they hired you because they felt sorry for you? Yeah, I of mean, course. Yeah. They must, I mean, they must think something is okay. You know, you've got to, you've got to get your head around this. And so that started, I ended up taking an off-Broadway show that had nudity in it, primarily because I was going to be starring and singing 13 songs. And I needed that kind of um uh, oh the word just went out of my head you know i needed to do that to to convince myself that i could do it yeah and uh but still even now i mean um <laughs> there are times when you know i'll get a call for an audition and and i'll think I can't do this. I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm, I, I can't do this. I don't, I can't do this. They're not going to, this, you know, and then, and then you do it and it's, Oh, okay. That was really okay. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I think as long as I've been doing this, I mean, at some point, hopefully you come to the realization that if you do the audition that you intended to do, if you are happy with it, if you think that's the best that you can do and you don't get the job, it's not because you're not talented. It's because you're not tall enough. It's because yeah, you're exactly. not blonde that's enough. Right. It's because yeah. you're not the right ethnicity. I mean, you know, there's so many things. And so you finally, after, you know, after years of thinking, oh, my God, I can't, you know, they didn't like me, <laughs> as Sally Field said. Yeah, um, <laughs> I love realize, Sally Field. I love that you just she's so oh, my gosh such a fan of hers and and you realize <laughs> you know it doesn't have anything to do with your talent it has to do with so many other things one of my favorite stories and see if i can do this without using any names but <laughs> my ex-husband was casting a pilot for one of the networks and he had two very recognizable equally talented actors vying for the same role they were both talented they were both great in the part the head of the network said, well, actor number one has just done three shows for us. He's great. We owe him a great deal. Let's hire actor number two. You know? What? It, yeah. Yeah. It's, there's no rhyme or reason. At, at a certain point, after yeah. you've done the best you can, 
there's you just have to let it go. Well, it's funny that you so, say that because, like, I, when I read that quote from in Brian Cox's book, I thought I've never personally in, in in my experiences as an actor and starting on stage and then you know having a lot of friends who are an actor who are actors and working in in show business like it just felt true to me that that insecurity is always there but it's not a bad thing necessarily because it i feel like it it help, it can be a tool for an actor yes yes i mean it it uh, ideally it drives you to to do the very best you can right. to prepare to you know to be prepared be prepared and you're not going into the room with a sense of entitlement which could put people off you know yeah um i guess it's a fine line yeah as long as it's not crippling that's it know? that's right yeah yeah you, you you have to kind of there's some equal blend of of that you need of of sort of confidence with that self doubt that is sort of the right yes. the right alchemy i think yes so on someone's watching me, you know, which I which I, is one of the one of the many films I ever visited to talk to you today. I hadn't seen it in many years, and I was, I had, I did not recall that your character in it was was a gay character. Um, I think she was probably the first lesbian on television. It's, I, I don't know. Yeah, that's one. remarkable to me. You know? Yeah, I mean, I'm a gay person, and my husband and I were watching the film, and he he looked at me and said, "Adrian's playing a gay character in this," and I was like, "I did not remember that detail," and. You know, that that was, you know, and the fact that, that you know, that John, I'm assuming, because he, he wrote this picture, right? Wasn't that? John wrote it. John wrote it. And actually, it led to <laughs> when when I first, and, and it, it's beautifully written. I, I oh, think absolutely. Agree. Yes. It's beautifully written. But when I went into interview with him, I remember walking in and if I could see him between in, inside the cloud of cigarettes, uh, I thought, Oh, this is, this is a nice looking man. This is a, he's a very nice looking man. I was attracted to him. And we started talking about the role and he said something about, well, if I were going to tell my friends that I was gay, I would do blah, 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 yeah, blah. And yeah. I thought, Oh, I he's thought, gay. Oh, shoot. He's gay. Forget <laughs> him. Forget him. That's not going to work. Okay, let's get the let's get down to business yeah. and do the movie. Yeah, know? yeah, that's so funny because. Yeah. Well, and it's you're right though in the writing. Like it's 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 you know so often as and it didn't get much better for a long time. Gay characters in film and television were you know written a certain way. They were like the quirky best friend, or this character is sensitive and restrained, and and it's a really lovely portrayal of a gay character from that time period and i was thinking you know when i was when i was listening to your audio book that like did you because you did so much stage you know and i know the theater world it's it's there's a lot of gay folk in theater did, did you know a lot of gay people and, and so did you kind of feel a connection to that character and wanting to sort of get that right because of, of gay friends that you had at the time Kevin, the first man I ever fell in love with was bisexual. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the love of my life. I met him when I was 16. He was a dancer, a choreographer. And uh, we spent a lot of time together. Um, and so, uh, you know, and in those days, I mean, we're talking the, the 60s now, you know, but I think from a, a, a very a fairly young age, 16 was young in those days to be thinking about, um, you know, sexuality. Sure. Uh, I just, it was just like, well, you know, you just, 
you fall in love with who you fall in love with. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I didn't, and, and I, I don't remember ever as I was approaching the role, and of course it's the thousand years ago, but I never thought in terms of, oh, I have to play her as a gay person. Right. No, it was just, um, I mean, it was just all there in the scene when, I do remember the scene fairly clearly. Uh, 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 oh, what's her name? Lauren. Lauren Hutton, Lauren Hutton, yeah. Is talking about, I guess she was just getting over a romance or a love affair or something. And I said, I indicated that I was just getting over a love affair. And Lauren said, oh, who was he? And I said, she. Yes, that's and right. Then, and we just went right on, yep. you know, and there that was the end of it. I mean... You know, maybe I wore my hair a little straighter than, <laughs> than I would have if I were, you know, yeah. wearing curly hair in those days. But uh, I didn't, I don't, there's no difference. Yeah. <laughs> it was just a lovely thing to see because, I mean, you probably know what I mean when I say that, like, you know, there was so little, you know, even going in, into the 80s, like a, a gay character being rendered sensitively in that way you know just it, it wasn't a common thing so I, I i really applaud you and john for for being respectful and honoring that and and well thank you thank you actually this is probably the first time i've ever talked about that in depth and that's really that's nice to hear um i mean my closest friends are gay yeah I mean, right so but uh yeah well thank you you're welcome um okay I was reading in your book about about you said that on on uh, someone's watching me that John gave you a really important piece of direction. What was the direction that he gave you? Yes, yes. Um, it wasn't that scene. I don't remember what scene it was, but it was one of the very first scenes that we did. And up until that time, I had done musical comedy. I had done straight plays. Well, I don't know if I'd done any straight plays. Yeah, I had. But I'd done musical comedy, I had done sitcom, and I had done television, you know. Um, and we did the first scene, and John came over to me and he said, that was great. That was great. Do less. Yeah. I said, do less? He said, yeah, just do less. And it was like the proverbial light bulb, you know. It's like, oh, do less. <laughs> yeah, know? that... And that crucial and, adjustment from being on the stage to being on the on, in front of the camera, right? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And that carried me through until George Romero said, do bigger, <laughs> do more, <laughs> do bigger. more. Yeah. <laughs> she can be bigger. And I say, George, are you sure? George, George, are you sure? <laughs> Don't do this to me. George. That's so <laughs> <No>. funny. <laughs> Gosh, and and both times, no doubt, out of a cloud of cigarette smoke, because George was a heavy smoker yes, too. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. <laughs> I'm curious because you know you you have this amazing body work. You've worked on the stage, and you know, and you've worked in, in film and television. Like, so you've worked with a lot of directors. For you, yes. how do you define a good director, and how do you define a bad director? Well, if I feel I can trust a director. But that, but I'm jumping ahead. I can only trust a director if I think he's a good director. So right. It, it, it's so it's not it's the chicken and the egg. But I think a good director knows what he wants. He knows how to communicate it to his actors. He knows how to get what he wants from his actors 
And I'm not one of those that, you know, I don't believe in manipulation and, and all of that bullshit. <laughs> I mean, tell me you want her more, you know, tell me you want her more insecure. Tell me you want her angrier. Tell me you want her more devastated, whatever. But don't, don't try and get something out of me by, you know, tormenting me. I do you know what I'm saying. Yeah, I like mean, this sort of this Stanley Kubrick approach of torturing the actor to get some kind of raw thing that you're looking for. Or... Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. that does. I don't. You know, I, 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 that's that's not my idea of. A, that's not the way I want to be directed. Right. I, one of the things I always think, you know, for me because I because I started as an actor and then I became a director was, I always remembered that that one of the things that I appreciated in a director was. If a director knows when to when I need that sort of bit of advice, but doesn't interfere with the process of thinking that that, that I need them to tell me, well, you know, the character would do this, and the character, I was like, yes. I know the character. I'm like, that's yes. my job. If I don't have that, I I, I suck. So like, um, yes, you know what I mean. So to me, it's like the directors that you know that 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 I had that would say, well, look, maybe you're you know you need to not maybe do that more like this. And what about that? And I was like. I know I I would think I know that I've been I've inhabited I have to inhabit this. Um, so knowing kind of to me with it as a, and as I became a director, knowing when to sort of leave an actor alone and trust that they have they have this the overview of who this person is that they're portraying, backing off and saying okay they've got this like you know and let's let them play a bit before I decide you know to to give that note. To me, knowing when to do that always seemed important. Yes, and and even before that, a good director knows how to cast that's it yeah you know yeah um if you get that right you've done most of the work that you're gonna do with yes. your cast yeah yes don't hire me to play you know a really weak sniveling uh, well i don't know maybe maybe at this age i, could, I mean <laughs> no way you know no way <laughs> yeah casting is especially in theater but but film too so it's all those things I can see a situation where something the actor may do may spark an idea in the director's head that he wants to take the character in a different direction. And then if he can explain that, it, you know, it's communication is a lot of it. And being in control of the set. You and I talked about a film before we started recording that we don't need to talk about now, <laughs> but that was certainly a, a, a situation where the lunatics were running the asylum. The director had absolutely no control and was letting the actors do just whatever they wanted and say whatever they wanted. I'll tell you one thing about John that I remember very specifically, and, and maybe this has changed in his later films, but the films that we did, John wrote the script usually. Yeah. And John didn't want you uh, ad-libbing. Yeah, he knew he he knew what those words were, and that those were the words he wanted. Uh, he was not big on ad libbing. The film that you and I talked about, I mean, come on, <laughs> it was like there wasn't a word on the page that got said. Yeah, and that, you know, and I blame the director in that because they didn't have any control at all. Yeah, it's one of the things I, you know, I mentioned Brian Cox's memoir, and one of the things he talked about, because of course he's, you know, a theater actor in, in a huge way, and he talked about when he transitioned to film, working with directors, 
who would constantly not respect the this the written work and and how important he felt that was and right you know that's that <laughs> you know I, I i never remember being on the stage and ever having a scenario where an actor felt that they could ad lib that's you know you just don't you don't no. you don't assume that you don't you don't for a reason <laughs> like do you ever remember being on a project where um where were you that you were happy with where there was ad libbing and where there was improvising and things? Well, you know, doing Cannonball Run with Dean Martin. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, Dean never said a word that was on the page. Right. But he was so delightful, except that working with him, I'm standing there thinking, uh, is that my cue? Should I yeah, talk now? Right. <laughs> <laughs> he was just all over the place. But in something like that, it didn't quite matter as much, although Again, I I I didn't appreciate that approach. You know, it was no. sort of like, oh well, we can do whatever we want. And the audience isn't going to care. They're going to think it's great. Yeah, you know, it was sort of like, I don't know, yeah. playing down to to the audience. But um, that's the only time I can really remember ad libbing where where it were where it worked. But I haven't worked with a lot of directors who allowed it. Well, yeah. that other one that we were talking right. about. Right. I've been fortunate, you know, I've worked with some really, really good people. Yeah. Going back to The Fog and, you know, The Fog is one of my favorite genre films. I've seen it more times than I can count. It was one of the ones I didn't necessarily have to revisit to talk to you today. Um, and I and I already had picked Dean Gundy's brain about it so many times. <laughs> but, um, you know, it was it was I was I was thinking watching it, you know, if, if you if you know John's work, there, you know, John was so influenced by the Howard Hawks style of yes. filmmaking and and you know what what sort of a, a, would be described as a hoxian woman and the stevie wayne character is very much that character definitely did definitely. did john spend time with you talking about what a hoxian woman meant to him and how he wanted that portrayed uh not not necessarily in terms of stevie wayne but you know we'd been together for a while before we started filming or even before he wrote it he showed me the old black and white movies. I was not, I've, I've never been a, a, a big movie goer and I certainly wasn't, you know, I mean, I saw a handful of, of foreign films when I was in my first year of college, but once I started working on Broadway or in theater, you know, I worked at night. So I, I didn't really ever go to movies very much. Um, and I didn't grow up watching movies and I didn't really grow up watching television. Um, so I hadn't seen a lot of the uh, Howard Hawks films or, or uh, Kate Hepburn or Lauren Bacall. I hadn't seen those. And, and so John did. He introduced me to them and introduced me to that type of character because that's what he... And I think that's why he probably hired me for someone's watching me because he had seen me in Maud and I think he saw that sort of strong type woman who could be funny right which was you know what he was attracted to i mean i i think when i think of actors that i know that work in the genre uh you know the the genre i thought has always been a wonderful playground for for women actors because it, because there is a lot of strong characters in horror despite what some people think horror is also the home of you know 
the final girl and the woman who's forthright and fights back against adversity. And there's a lot, you know, so to me, I think of long before where it is now, where you have a lot of female superheroes and stuff, you had, you know, Sigourney Weaver and Jim, the, the sort of the scream queen thing, right? Which you, right. which you certainly are. But I always thought, you know, that the, the hallmark of a great scream queen was being able to do tough and assertive and forthright without any kind of cost of what people might just traditionally describe as femininity, being able to do both. And that's sort of, to me, is sort of what the Hoxian woman embodies is that those two qualities. Yes. Yes. Um, I agree. And frankly, you're one of the best at that. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. I also was thinking watching The Fog that it's sort of, it's must have been a, it's interesting to note in that film that you're, it's this wonderful cast. There's, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is back and the wonderful Janet Lee and Hal Holbrook, who you would later go on to work with in, in Creepshow. And there's this great cast, but you hardly get to play with any of those actors. I don't. You're right. Yeah. You're in the, you're in the lighthouse the whole time, really. Um, was that like a Tom Atkins? Uh, you know, I've done four movies with Tom, but we've never had a scene together. <laughs> I noticed that watching the work you guys have done. there. I was like, you guys are never together in this stuff. When you were doing The Fog, was that a part like, you know, John and you were married, of course, at the time. So you were I'm sure you got to meet all the actors. But were you kind of bummed that you didn't get to have any scenes with all these great actors? Um, I, no, I don't think I, I, I don't think I thought about it. I mean, Tommy and I were very close friends. Uh, you know, I, I probably introduced Tommy to John. I don't. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. I, I think I did. John and I both knew Jamie Lee because he had already directed her in in Halloween and so she used we used to socialize with Jamie Lee. I had never met her mom. I don't know if I ever met Hal when we were doing the film. I think I, I think I read that Hal Holbrook was brought in pretty quickly. He had a, a, a time restriction of some kind. So I wonder, yeah, maybe he was in and out fast on that show. And all of his stuff would have been done down in Southern California in the church. At the church. Right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Which I was never at. Okay. Uh, J uh, uh, Nancy Kyes, Nancy Loomis, um, she stood up with her, at that time, husband, Tommy Wallace. They stood up for us when John and I got married in, in Kentucky. So I knew Nancy very well. Right. And... Um, my mother is an extra in one of the scenes. Oh, really? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I only worked with um, with Ty yeah, Mitchell. the little guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so Escape from New York, I just quickly wanted to talk about on Escape, you know, the amazing cast. But one of my one of my hero actors that inspired me to become a filmmaker was Donald Pleasance. And you got to work with him oh, in Escape from New York. Yes. Can you tell me a little bit about working with the great Donald Pleasance? Donald Pleasance was probably the funniest actor I've ever worked with. Um, <laughs> he just, there was something about his wit that just put me away. And <laughs> I can't tell you how many times John would say, okay, rolling, action. And I'd say, stop, stop, wait, you gotta <laughs> stop, I can't. Because he would have said, right as he said action, Donald would say something and I'd just, I'd be on the floor. I just loved him. <laughs> um, my first introduction to him was when I was doing Fiddler on the Roof on Broadway. My dressing room was backed up to, I don't remember the name of the theater that was right next door to us. And suddenly in the middle of 
the show, as I'm in my dressing room, I'm hearing this yelling coming through the door, this screaming coming through brick walls, you know. And it was Donald doing the man in the glass booth oh, wow. in the theater next door. It was uh, powerful. Oh, he was. Yeah, I, I saw I got a copy of his work uh, doing the Pinter show that he did, uh, The Caretaker. And uh, boy, do I wish I'd ever had the chance to see him on stage. Oh, well, he was he was just wonderful. I really loved him. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. I'm just such a huge fan. I, I, knew, I knew I had to ask you about that. Um, I was also curious, like when you guys did Escape from New York, you know, this movie goes on to become this sort of pop culture phenomenon. So many people adore Escape from New York and the Snake Plissken character. Do you, when you make a movie like that and it goes on to sort of achieve that status, do you ever have an idea of that when you first see it? Do you see it and go, oh, I think this is going to really catch on? Like, does, is that something that's ever happened? No. Well, I, 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 I say that with a, a caveat, but, you know, back in those days, I mean, I guess we had beta, right? Didn't we yeah, have beta? 80, back in 82, the 80s? 81. I yeah. think so. I think beta would have around then. Yeah. The phenomenon of of people watching movies over and over and over again, I I don't think it had had settled in, but certainly in any of those films, none of us none of us anticipated that you know fifty years later, forty years later, they would still be. I mean, people come up to me all the time. I watch The Fog once a month. I, you know, I watch uh, Escape from New York is my favorite movie. My dad just showed me Escape from New York from a 16-year-old. And, oh, my God, I, you know. Yeah. No, we had no idea. The only one I remember when I got the original script, I remember thinking, you know, this could really be successful because I thought it was so delightful. It was sort of a Beauty and the Beast. and um, this could be, I mean, this could be something, you know, this could be like Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. Yeah. I, the Raiders, had, Raiders hadn't come out yet because we went to a screening of Raiders when we were on location. Star with, Wars, with probably. The, Star Wars came in 77. Star Wars. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. it would, could be like Star Wars. Unfortunately, that original script had to be so chopped up and torn apart and rewritten because they kept pulling the budget out from under Wes that, um, you know, the fact that the final version did become so successful is a real tribute to him. It could have been so much more had he been left alone with the original budget that they promised him. But I do remember that's the only time I, I read a script and thought this could be this could be something. Yeah. Years later, I read a script. I only read 20 pages. It was an offer. And I called my agents and said, there's no way I'm doing this. I'll never do this. This is vile. This is just, I'll never do this. And then a year later, I ran into um, Bill Mosley at a convention. And Bill was signing and he had people lined up for blocks. I said, Bill, this is fantastic. What what movie did you do that's so successful that you know people? Oh, 
uh, the devil's reject. Yeah. And, yeah. That's the, and that's the one I had said, I'll never do this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's usually the ones that get away, I, I suppose. Yeah. I, I would, I couldn't have done it. I just couldn't have done it. That was not my kind of, not my kind of. Pretty thing. grisly. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching D in Rob Zombie's Halloween and she had that horrible murder scene and she said to me, what did you think, Kevin? I said, I could watch that. I, it's you. It was, uh, you know, it's like D's the <laughs> sweetest person and she gets just butchered in that. I was like, ah, oh, God, I can't. Yeah. It's Rob Zombie doesn't pull punches. Yeah. I ended up doing that Halloween for him. It was just one scene with Malcolm and then it got cut and it's in the direction. Yes, cut. I saw but that. It was, it was it was a straight scene. It wasn't. <laughs> it, yeah, you weren't getting brutalized. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> and one of the things, too, that must have been fun on Escape is, you know, I sort of always think of you and, and I guess Jamie Lee Curtis is sort of John's go to leading lady, scream queen gals. And, and then, of course, but Kurt Russell is his his go to guy. And you got to work with Kurt in Escape from New York. What was it like working with uh, Kurt Russell? Oh, Kurt is, he's just, he's the best. I mean, we were friends because Kurt had done Elvis for John. Right. And Kurt and Season. Um, and so, you know, I knew him socially. We didn't share the same political views, but I, but I loved him. And I mean, he's just, he's such a man. She's just, he's a wonderful actor. He's just, you know, you couldn't ask for anybody better to work with. Let's talk. Let's talk about the convent. You're right, because that's one. I love the convent. I was just. I mean, it should have had a theatrical release here, and it didn't. There were politics involved and everything. It ended up winning festival awards in uh, in Europe, and um, I just thought it was great fun. I mean, it's so funny that uh, whenever anybody says, "Oh, you know, I, I've seen most of your stuff," I say, "Well, take a look at the convent." I'm basically playing Snake Plissken. Yeah, you know? totally, <laughs> totally. <laughs> And uh, again, Mike Mendez was, uh, as you say, another horror director who's just, you know, laid back and easy and knew what he wanted and only had a, a limited budget and made it work because he just went the other way. And it's know? such a tricky movie, too. I was thinking when I was watching it again recently, like this is one of those movies like I was thinking, you know, when you got the script, you'd have to read this script to go. If this if we don't get the exact right tone for this, this could be really stupid. But, you know, because it's 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 a it's a tightrope with a script like that because it's funny and it's crazy and it's wacky. But it he this director just found that tone so perfectly. And your performance is just the timber of the performance is perfect. So I just loved it. Yeah, I just loved it. Yeah. Did you have any concerns when you first read the script of sort of going like we got to we really got to have to get this right or this won't work? Did you did you think that you remember when you read it? No, I didn't. I guess I I just always take. I have a very limited imagination, <laughs> you know, and I just always take it for granted that it's going to be good. Yeah. You know, which is <laughs> what I thought about that other one that we were talking about right. that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't worry about, I mean, it, I mean, I just think if everybody shows up and does their job correctly, then it's going to be good because it's the words on the page are good. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, and it's fun too seeing you in that film because you get to do a lot of you're a kick ass demon slayer. Like, yeah. did you enjoy doing all the action? <laughs> I had a good time. I mean, that I was going to say friggin. I'm sorry. That motorcycle. you can swear. We swear on this show all the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go for it. <laughs> no, that that motorcycle, you know, they couldn't get it to start. They couldn't get it to go. They couldn't get it to do this or do that. So it was sort of a pain in the neck. But uh, but it was great fun. It's such a fun movie. 
And I do know that I did ad lib one line in there that Mike really liked, and now I can't remember. It's, setting, it's always something with virgins. I don't know. Yeah. I don't remember yeah. if that was it or not. I mean, maybe that line was in there already, I, but there was some other line. That well, <laughs> and I have to commend you on there's some wonderful uh curse word usage in that you know it's it's hard to to curse well and you you really nailed the cursing in that role <laughs> oh god i'm gonna have to go back and watch it because yeah. i can't remember what that was it's so funny <laughs> there's a part where where uh one of the characters sort of is is crying and you just kind of look at it and you're like oh for fuck like it's just she's, you're so oh, really yeah it's really funny just kind of because she's so this woman who's seen it all already you know what i mean so none of this yeah. stuff is phasing her it's such a fun yeah such a fun part well, well we'll wrap up here on carnival because uh because i love carnival and it's a wonderful show i wish it had gotten to continue i'm sure you do too but one of the things yes, I, I, I have to ask you about carnival is I feel like going back and revisiting this show that it would have a very, you know, I know it had huge fans back then. And I know a lot of people who adore this show, but do you think Carnival would be a hit now? Do you think that, that audiences, modern viewers are more willing to accept the kind of magic realism that that show had to offer? Yes, I think, I think we were the beginning, you know, I mean, had we come maybe just two years later, three years later, uh, I, I think we gave rise to so many of these shows that are dealing with mysticism and uh, the supernatural, and that's not the really white word for for what we were doing. But um, uh, I think had we had one more year, we would have found the crossover audience that HBO was was demanding. They had just come off of Sopranos and Six Feet Under. And they wanted those kinds of numbers. And Carnival was a very expensive show to produce because of the because of it taking place in the 30s and the special effects and the, you know, having to block out telephone poles and things like that. And I don't think they really got it. You know, they they just didn't get it. But yeah, I think it was the precursor to so much of what came after that if it were on now, definitely. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking going back and looking at the show a bit that there's this wonderful connection between your character and Nick Stahl's character. And, you know, these, yes. they have this very intimate thing that's that's really sort of beautiful. And but but through the lens of kind of the, the, the Ben character's sort of Christian guilt, that's constantly sort of driving him to keep a distance from the women that he meets. And and, you know, from your point of view, do you think that like Ruthie was drawn to Ben despite all those attempts at isolation that his character sort of puts up because she seems compelled almost? towards him there's such a romantic a romantic quality to that dynamic yes well it was it was romance and it was i want to say motherly but it, it it wasn't motherly because she was just drawn to him yeah you know and you know you were earlier asking me what makes a, a good director we had a scene it was it was a, a lovemaking scene between nick and myself and I'm trying to remember who I think our director was his Tim Patterson. I think no, no, no. He was our he was our director. Oh my gosh, I've forgotten his name. He's from Canada. It was his episode. And I had had a five-hour dance scene with the snake about four days before. It was Memorial Day weekend, I remember. I I what do you call it? Um slipped a disc in my back. I was in ungodly pain. Eesh. And time came to do the the love scene 
and they had it all blocked where I was going to, I guess I, I, I leaned over the bed and took my shoes off and I did this or I did that. And then I'm lying down and we roll over and we do all of this and I couldn't move. I was in such pain that God loved the director. You know, he helped me block it so that I didn't have to go so that I wasn't grimacing. You know? Yeah. And, uh, and so that's where another, another way a good director shows himself. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I love that character. Well, and, it, and it was such a, it was such a joy, at, you know, for a woman my age at that time yeah. to be able to, to play somebody who wasn't a judge or a nurse or well, a doctor. And you know what I love, or, Adrian, yeah. was like the, the scenes between Nick Stahl, who was fantastic on this series. He was so great. Yes. And the scenes yes. between you and Nick, like there was never, uh, I, I, they were never kind of hiding the, 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 the sexuality of the piece, that even though your character was an older woman and he was a younger man, there was never an apology for that. And it was wonderfully sensual and sexual. And the show, you know, in your performance and Nick's, they embraced that without sort of making apologies for their difference in their age or anything. And I think that's really, there's a real intimacy that's lovely there. Yes, I, I agree. I agree, and thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, it was one of my favorites. Oh, mine too. Um, well, we'll we'll wrap up here, but before we do, I have one last question, which is, what what's up next? What have you got coming down the pipe that we can look forward to seeing you in? What's up next? I am. Well, we're in you know in discussions to do another. Actually, it's a short film. I've got a film coming up, and maybe another one. Um, we're just wrapping up the script for a pilot for a series based on my second vampire novel, Love Bites. Oh, great. Which is called Vane, which I'm writing with Harrison Smith, who you probably know from uh, Camp Dread and um, Death House. And he's just got another one coming out right now, Where the Scary Things Are. He's worked with D on, uh, I think they worked on Death House. Yes, that's right. Yep. And then uh, just finished a um, just finished an animated film based on the comic book and the movie The Watchmen, and uh, getting ready to start on a video game in about two weeks. And then when I'm not acting, I do video captioning for the blind. So that if you're watching your TV and you put it on the SAP channel, the, the secondary audio programming channel, you will hear my voice or someone else's voice on all of your favorite shows. This is the only way I ever see horror films is because <laughs> they call me in. They call me in to do all of the Blumhouse films, you know. Yeah. Um, and I am doing the describing of the action that is on screen in between the dialogue. For visually impaired, that's great. Viewers, that's great. Yeah, I mean, it, what a what a treat to have your voice for that. I'm used to like like my Alexa and the stuff I have around here. Their, their voices are terrible. I, 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 so, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, in fact, I just did Cujo. Uh, you know, they, D's, they're, the film they're, that D was in. Yes, they're putting Cujo up. Uh, you know, on some streaming service, I guess. And I just got to, I just got to do that with, to watch D all over again. Oh, she's so great. When she, when she was on the show, we talked a lot about Cujo. It's her favorite of her work. She's incredible in it. It's such an amazing performance. Yeah. Don't you and D have yeah. a film coming out? In, in the, and Tony Todd, the three of you are in a, in, in, a, in a film together, aren't you? 
oh, uh, did Dee do that one as well? Yeah. I, you know, I just, my, my, I just had, it's an, it's sort of an anthology. Okay. I'm trying to remember what it's, do you remember what it's called? Yes, I have it right here. Um, um, I don't know when it's coming out. Because uh, Tony's coming on the show soon. So I was, I was looking, I was like, geez, the three of my guests in a row, they're all doing the same movie. I'm not, I, you know, I don't know if they've finished putting it together. Well, let's see. I'll know it as soon as you tell me what it's called. Hell, no, no, not Hellraiser. You just, you and Tony just did that one together, Hellblazers. Yeah. The Pitchfork is that's listed. The Pitchfork. Yeah. The Pitchfork. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That'll be an interesting one. I'll be interested in seeing my performance in that one because I think it was, uh, Oh, well, we'll see what it is. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it really was, it, I was, as I was saying to you before we started recording, it was so much fun to go back and watch so much of your work and read your book. And like, cause it's funny, there's, there's some overlap for me in, in both. Uh, so I'm a, a poor filmmaker, but my start, uh, my career was all on stage doing musical theater. So. Oh, really? Yeah, I did, you know, I did Grease, Rocky Horror Picture Show, all of it in Toronto where I, where I would grow up. Um. But um, it was just fun because well, there's so many facets of your work that I was able to relate to and enjoy and connect to that it makes it uh, very relatable for me. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, um, I don't you probably don't know this, but I have a, a book coming out June 7th. I, I, co I collaborated on it about Greece. Oh, yes. <laughs> your, your publicist sent me some yes. info, but I can't wait yeah. to read it. That's. That I love. Well, I mean, Greece is like, I think it was the second show I did. The first show I did was Rocky Horror, which was, oh, of course, yeah, which was a blast and was way too hard for me to attempt as my first show, but I did anyway. Um, and then I did Greece, and uh, so I have a you know a, a certain connection and, and love of that of that show. And you you did the what the very first off off. I was the original Rizzo. That's amazing. In the first. We started off Broadway. We started, and it was fifty years ago. So, this this book that's coming out is, uh, you know, for the fiftieth anniversary, and it is a collection of stories from more than a hundred actors who were in the original Broadway show, and then the national touring companies, uh, everyone from Travolta to Patrick Swayze to uh, Richard Gere, and uh, all of us were in the original company. Uh, and they're just wonderful stories of that you will really enjoy. I think. Oh man! Show, yeah, I can't. Know. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adrian, I can't thank you enough for coming on and talking. This has been such a blast, and I love your work. And you're the nicest person. I'm so pleased to have you uh, come and do this with me. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts with host and filmmaker Kevin Lane. Kevin Lane Spill Your Guts was created by Kevin Lane and produced by Cindy McLean. Production editing and sound design provided by Blaine Swanson and One House Studio. Video production and editing generously created by Matt Handy. The Spill Your Guts theme and incidental music was created by composer Mike Haddon. You're currently listening to supervising producer Jason Hill. For exclusive bonus content, giveaways, and contests, be sure to subscribe to our Patreon account at www.patreon.com forward slash spillyourguts. All one word. 
Spill Your Guts is only made possible by our supporters and listeners like you. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy ad-free versions of Kevin's conversations with some of horror culture's titans of terror, as well as the many hours of bonus content, consider subscribing to our channel. But that's not the only way you can support what we do. If you like what you hear and you want more, get the word out to your friends, your family, random people on the street, retail cashiers, unattended babies, the hot guy you work with, on-duty members of law enforcement, anyone with a pair of ears and a taste for the guts and gore of horror. This has been Kevin Lane's Spill Your Guts. Thanks for listening.